Hey everyone, thanks for joining us today. This is your host, Brian Peterson. Our guest today is Michael Stubbs, who is a historian and the founder of the Mount Mitchell Prairie Guards, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to preserving the Mount Mitchell Heritage Prairie Park in Northeast Kansas. Mount Mitchell is a valuable place where visitors have the opportunity to make multifaceted connections. It is a star attraction of Freedom's Frontier National Heritage Area. It is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. It's a sacred indigenous site where ancestors are buried. It is one of the first sites in Kansas to be recognized as a National Park Service Network to Freedom Underground Railroad commemorative site. It is an auxiliary site of the U.S. Civil Rights Trail. It is a monarch way station. It is a featured attraction on the native stone scenic byway and preserves a large remnant of tall grass prairie and serves as an example of a diminished ecosystem that is more endangered than the Amazon forest. You can get more information about Mount Mitchell at mountmitchellprairie.org. Hey, Michael, thanks for joining us today. That's quite a list of accolades from Mount Mitchell. Well, it it kind of makes me laugh because every one of those distinctions has been an effort to get folks to recognize how important this site is. And that's finally starting to happen after oh, 14 years now we've been at it. Yeah. And how did, how did, um, so about 14 years ago, or is it before that, that you uh, started to lead the charge as the founder of the Prairie Guards? Well, to go way back, um, there was a group of historians who wanted to get together to plan the activities for the sesquicentennial of Kansas Territory, which was uh, back in, uh, I don't know my math, 2001 or 2000, a long time ago. Um, and what grew out of that group and our planning was a realization that the Underground Railroad in eastern Kansas had not really been studied in enough detail to have a sense of how the oh, the entire system worked. Uh, local historians in Lawrence and Baldwin City, uh, Vinland, places like that, had found their own stories, but nobody had put all the stories together from the different places in eastern Kansas. And so one of our uh, concrete things that happened from our committee was we made a brochure called the Underground Railroad in Kansas. And that was the first time all these sites uh, were brought together. And then out of that grew um, the idea to have a national heritage area in western Missouri and eastern Kansas. And initially the theme was going to be bleeding Kansas uh, that's the period that historians, uh, they refer to um, after Kansas was made a, an official territory. It had been Indian territory up until 1854. And so um, they, they made it an official, um, they made it a territory, and they, the folks that, came to the territory would vote whether it would be free or slave. It was the first time that would happen. 
it used to be that every time a territory would enter the Union, there'd be a free state and a pro-slavery state. So the balance of power in Congress was, was balanced. And that had been going on since well, at least 1830. And so for the first time, the people in the territory would vote. And so what happened is all these pro-slavery folks from Missouri just had to cross the imaginary line and they were in Kansas and they could vote. And But this had been brewing for about, oh goodness, at least a year in Congress, the idea of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And so abolitionists in New England had had time to form the New England Immigrant Aid Society and they got cut rate. Uh, rates on train travel, and they helped the new communities that form free state communities with sawmills and temporary housing and all that kind of stuff. So you had this clash, and before all the free state people got here, the the first election elected all these pro-slavery people, and they adopted a pro-slavery constitution. And mm -hmm. so once all the free state people had arrived later that year, we're talking 56, 1856, they actually had the numbers, and they formed their own government and elected their own governor and all that, which eventually they were charged with treason for doing that. Uh, but anyway, so there was actual violence. This is where a lot of people say the Civil War actually be began at Blackjack Battlefield, which is south of Lawrence near Baldwin City. Um, John Brown and an officer of the U.S. military actually exchanged gunfire. Wow. And uh, that's, that's, you know, local people want to say that was the first shot of the Civil War, not, not at Fort Sumner. But, you know, nothing just happens like a switch. Uh, like, look at now. <laughs> Where is this leading to? <laughs> um, it's, anyway, I could go off on that. But let's talk about the park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Michael, that, that was, was it, it sounded like that was quite a rush to come to Kansas to, you know, make it however people wanted to. I mean, there was a lot of freedom in that. And so after... Um, these anti-slavery folks set up their own government. It was treason. There was some violence. Where did it go from there? Yeah, thank you for keeping me on track. It's going to be necessary. That's okay. <laughs> uh, well, what happened? So this uh, colony from New Haven, Connecticut, primarily, but it was it was all around Connecticut. Uh, New Haven had been the site of the Amistad trial back in the 1830s when some slaves had. Uh, enslaved people had mutinied on a ship and turned the ship back to go back to Africa. And they were intercepted and they were put on trial. And it, John Adams, former president, was one of the attorneys for, for these people. And it was big news for a long time. And it radicalized the population in Connecticut who were reading you know, the daily accounts. I mean, there's a movie called Amistad, if you really want to get into it. Well, uh, Captain Mitchell, William Mitchell, his father was one of the founders of the anti-slavery society in New Haven, or actually in Middletown, which was south by the coast, or east, I guess. Um, 
but he was connected to New Haven. And so um, he had that in his bones. He had this anti since he was a child, he was raised in an anti-slavery abolitionist household. And so it was second nature to him. He had gone off to the gold fields in California and Australia and he came back and got back to Connecticut around late 1855, 56, just in time to, to see what was going on with the bleeding Kansas, with the immigration to Kansas. And so he joined something called the Connecticut, Kansas Colony. And actually, the man who gets credit for founding that group, is his name is Charles Lines. And he was one of the deacons at the Old North Church in New Haven. And he's the man who built the coffin for uh, Webster. What was Webster's first name? Henry Webster? No. Anyway, um, he had, you know, he was known locally. And he had put these appeals in the newspaper saying, let's form a colony to go to Kansas to make it a free state. And so about 90 people responded, actually more, but when they actually left in the spring of 1856, um, they had, I think, about 89 people uh, and five, five women and three children, maybe, mostly men. And funny enough, lots of people connected with Yale, graduates, students, students, professors. Uh, this was... In my life in the 60s, that time just before the Civil War when all that was happening, it reminds me in my life of the 60s and what I went through with the anti-war movement and all that. You know, you're young and you're idealistic and you, you want to fight for justice. And <laughs> this, this was what was happening in 1856. So all these folks came to Kansas. Um, another little side note is Henry Ward Beecher, who was the famous preacher from Brooklyn. Uh, his sister, Harriet Beecher Stowe, wrote the book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And if you know your Civil War history, uh, some people credited um, that book with actually being the spark that uh, started the Civil War because it portrayed the life of enslaved people so vividly to those mm -hmm. who read it, Northerners mostly. Anyway, so he, he, he was, you know, there's a book written by a friend of mine called The Most Famous Man in America. It won the Pulitzer Prize a few years ago. It's all about his life. Uh, he was so eloquent and was able to really motivate people with his oratory. Well, he was friends with a lot of these folks uh, in the Connecticut, Kansas colony because his family came from Connecticut. He went to school in Connecticut. And they had, he wanted to help his friends. And so right before they were leaving, they met in uh, Brewster Hall on the campus of Yale. And, or, or was it Old North Church? See, <laughs> all the little facts like that, sometimes as I age, they don't always mesh. Anyway, <laughs> one of those two places, um, certainly a, 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 a very well-known place. If it was the church, they actually rented the church for the evening. It wasn't like at a service or something. Anyway, he he says, you know, the, these people are going to Kansas unarmed. 
And what can we do about it? Because the Sharps rifle, which was the most advanced weapon of the time, was actually made there near nearby Hartford. And they somebody was going to supply rifles to them, but that deal fell through. And so in this going away meeting, he's, Beecher stands up and says, we can't let them go unarmed. If we can raise the money to buy rifles here tonight, I will pledge 25 from my church in Brooklyn. And so then this raucous, jovial, fake uh, auction kind of happened. And the junior class at Yale said, well, I'll give 25, we'll give 25. And and then uh, Mr. Killam will, um, he'll give 25 for one rifle. That's how much a rifle costs. And and then Beecher would do a word play on the person's name, like Killam. I don't know what he said, but you know he made everybody laugh. It was this big thing. So by the end of the evening, uh, they had secured 25 uh, money for 25 rifles from the local community, and then Beecher's um, congregation surprised 600 and some dollars. Uh, he sent a check. Beecher did not send the box, the Bibles, I mean, the rifles in boxes marked Bibles. <laughs> um, that, that's an in-joke for some people who might watch this. <laughs> um, anyway, so the, this made national news. And so this, I mean, it was like the O.J. Simpson of the time. I mean, a lot of Southerners sent their kids to Yale to go to school, and there was a lot of alumnus from the South, and they did not like this happening. And um, the papers just ate it all up. And so Charles Lines ended up writing a, a diary that was published in the in the Hartford, oh, I forget the name of the paper, Palladian, the Hartford Palladian, and then other newspapers like the New York Times, they published his diary as they went to Kansas. So why I'm oh, getting nice. telling you all this in detail is this this park, Mount, the Mount Mitchell Heritage Prairie. Uh, it once it was the land that. Captain Mitchell, the lead, one of the leaders of this colony, claimed when he got he, there in 1856. And uh, his son gave the park to the State Historical Society uh, 50 years ago, 1953. Um, and the state agreed to take it and make it as a memorial to this colony who came to Kansas to make Kansas a free state. And so the state historical society accepted it, but nothing ever happened. The leadership of the society changed. Um, there was never any funds to develop the park. And then there was a reorganization of state government, I don't know, about 30 years ago. And somehow ownership of the park, instead of going to the park, to state wildlife and parks, it went to a nonprofit that supports the State Historical Society. So the nonprofit had no staff, no funding to do anything with the park. So it sat there for all those years, 50 years just about. And then back to my um, group in Lawrence that were, we were called the Kansas, the Territorial Kansas Heritage Alliance. Um, we learned about, I learned about the, this history that I've just 
relate to you. I didn't know it at the time, but I got into it. And over the years, I've, you know, really drilled down on it. Um, we, we felt this, that this, well, what happened is the, the family, the State Historical Society, the, their director was retiring and he wanted to clean house for his, his, his successor. And one of the things he wanted to do was get rid of this white elephant, which is what, and at that point, the park was only 30 acres or so. And so I happened to be on the board of the historical society at the time. So I heard this, you know, this rumor and found out it was true. So I got involved with the Mitchell family. I, that's the first people I contacted and said, let's let us local folks, let's make the park your grandfather envisioned and great grandfather, actually the generation now. Um, and fortunately, bless their hearts. There, there are five grandchildren of, uh, Will Mitchell, who gave the, the 30 acres to the state, and they all completely, totally got on board. And so we started working with the Historical Society to transfer the park to us. And, oh, a year or so into the process, we got a little um, distracted for a couple years because um, this area that Mount Mitchell represents, it's Tallgrass Prairie. And there's only less than 4% of Tallgrass Prairie left in the world. It was once an ecosystem that stretched all the way from Manitoba down to the Gulf Coast in, in Texas. Wow. And I don't know how many million acres, but this, this, it was an incredibly wonderful ecosystem because it was just out of the rain shadow of, of the Rockies. So our, Average rainfall is like 36 inches or something. And so the grasses, they truly would uh, grow seven, sometimes eight feet as high as a horse's head. And there are many, many uh, descriptions of that by the early explorers and, and people who first came to the region that weren't Native American. Um, anyway, so we, we this, they wanted to, this threat came, This we're talking 20 years ago, 21 now, of industrial wind in the Flint Hills. And it was incredible. They, it, the, it's like uh, oil wildcatters. When the, it's, it's gonna happen right now with solar. There is so much government money out there to do something that, you know, the famous government trough, there are all these people who want to form solar companies, in our case, it was wind, and build wind turbines. And they, the sites they picked were always near transmission lines because they weren't uh, a developed enough company, these original, I don't even know what the term was. I call them wildcatters. I mean, it, can, it would come down to uh, maybe there were, the company had three employees or something. And they were going around and they'd get the leases signed from people. Well, we did our research and realized that the ecological damage that huge turbine complexes cause to an ecosystem is just not acceptable. Mm -hmm. And so we, we had a meeting. There was a group called Protect the Flint Hills that was formed and 
everybody who loved this region didn't matter, Republican, Democrat, independent, whatever. We saw the threat. And fortunately, we had some well-connected people that came on board and had the ear of the governor at the time. It was Governor Sebelius. And Democrat of Kansas. We do have Democrats in Kansas. <laughs> um, anyway, through lobbying her, I don't know. I wasn't in the back rooms for all that. But working with the power companies, she agreed to no force of law, nothing, just her bully pulpit or her pulpit in cooperation with all the power companies, they agreed on a map of the heart of the Flint Hills and the industrial wind that, that the power purchasers would not buy power produced within the Flint Hills. So it essentially protected the Flint Hills. And every governor since her, uh, Parkinson, Brownback, Kelly, mm, hope I didn't, oh, and Collier, they all agreed and it still stands today. And it's it's a gentleman's agreement. I mean, the power nice. companies have, have realized that, as I said, it's the last 4% of Tallgrass Prairie in the world, and it's landscape sale. I mean, I didn't say, you know, Iowa, all of Iowa was Tallgrass Prairie, and the only prairie they have left pretty much is along the railroad right-of-ways and the highways. Wow. And they recognized that about 40 years ago. And, oh, my God, if anybody's interested about how to preserve prairie in a situation like that, Iowa has done an incredible job. They, hmm. The science of it's called integrated roadside vegetation management. And it's all science-based. It's, it's, you know, don't use herbicides. It pollutes the water. Don't cut the grass because it... Uh, the wildlife, instead of uh, they can hunker down and hide when a car comes by instead of having no cover and feeling mm -hmm. threatened and fly in front of the car. I mean, it just goes on and on, this, the wonderful science of it. And they have adopted it there. And so they have uh, wildflowers along their highway. Well, unfortunately, that that's a whole nother digression that I hope yeah. to work with the governor this year on, frankly. There's a lot okay. of us now might be the time to do this. We've got a new head of uh, Department of Transportation coming in. Um, you know, there's a better way to do it. And and here in Kansas, since we have these thousands of acres of tall grass prairie, and, and what? You, you care about the roadside? It's just a ditch. You know, we're still in the ditch mentality. Iowa is, wow, this is a, a ecosystem we want to preserve. Wow. You know? Well, wow. anyway, so Brian, you got to help me here. I just okay. can't to go off off. <laughs> no, it's fine, You're a wealth of knowledge, and and one thing that I um, was thinking about for the listeners out there is a lot of people are pretty surprised to hear about an area called the Flint Hills of Kansas. You know, a lot of people think of Kansas as pancake flat, and we actually have some topography in Northeast Kansas, and Mount Mitchell is right in the middle of that, and it's a very special place. It's not really developed, and Michael, I don't know if you have some information about the Flint Hills that um, can just kind of help listeners visualize the area. Yeah, well, it's like it's like the shape of a spear point, a, a flint spear point. Um, and it goes from just south of the Nebraska border in the north of Kansas. 
And it, most of the time it's about 30 miles wide, but then at the wide part, it's about 90 miles wide, I think. And it goes all the way down into Oklahoma, into Osage County, Oklahoma. And it's in the flyway uh, the, of many, many migrating birds right above my house. I live about 15 miles from Mount Mitchell out in the hills. And on the hill right above my house, um, these upland sandpipers from eastern Mexico come and nest. And if anybody, go Google it or what is the bird, my bird, I bird, whatever it's called. Uh, go and listen to an upland sandpiper. It is the most wonderful sound. It just, it's joy. It makes you smile. And they nest right up at Mount Mitchell also, but right above my house. And, you know, I know when they're gone, they leave sometime mid-July, go back to Mexico with their young that they've raised. Um, anyway, Brian, help. Where was I? <laughs> well, we, we were talking about the Flint Hills. Um, oh, the Flint Hills. Before. Okay. Um, but I did want to also ask in terms of Flint Hills, why was it that the Connecticut, Kansas, a colony decided to choose this area of Kansas to fight slavery. Like what was it about Northeast Kansas, the Flint Hills area that that's where captain Mitchell ended up? Well, you know, they had sent a scouting party out and the scouting five guys and, and, and like a month before the big party left and they went all over Eastern Kansas. And it's a very good question, by the way. Um, they went down to developing community. And, and mind you, again, this is America. This is capitalism. A lot of these people who came, we're going to start a town. We're going to start businesses. We're going to build railroads. We're, you know, it was all opportunity. And um, there were a lot of what they call paper towns. Somebody would go and buy some land or, or claim some land and then plat it. And one of those places was Wabunsi. And while Bunsey, W-A-B-A-U-N-S-E-E, uh, is the anglicization of something like Wabase or something like that. Uh, he was a Potawatomi chief. And as I had said earlier, uh, Eastern Kansas had been uh, the original part of the original Indian territory that went all the way from Canada all the way down to the Gulf. And I mean, today we think Indian territory, you, you think Oklahoma because it was the last last one, but there were others before that. And, and so um, the, the reservations, all the titles hadn't been settled yet when the territory opened. And so these five scouts went around and one of the places they went, a guy, who, an old uh, missionary to the Indians, had run into one of these guys in Kansas City, and he said, you should go check out right west of the Potawatomi Reservation. And there's a place called Antelope Creek. And somebody there, it's oh, a French name, he, he plotted it the, follow, the previous fall. And so there was already a platted town there called Wabunsi. And so this one of the fellows of the five went there and really liked it. And 
the site was chosen because it was right outside. I mean, it was just like Captain Mitchell, the park is, is less than a mile outside the reservation. So it was the first place west of the reservation where th that was legal to settle at the time that had decent water. And they thought at this time, they still thought the Kansas River was navigable. And because steamships, they'd had some wet years and steamships could go all the way up to uh, Manhattan and Junction City, but that didn't last long. Uh, plus the railroads nixed, they started building bridges because they didn't want the competition of the river traffic. <laughs> like oh it, gosh. You know, you, it, it all, it's the American story, but what can yeah, say? Yeah, yeah. So, so anyways, so that's why they ended up there. And, and another point is a lot of these groups came, but the Connecticut, Kansas colony, which I didn't finish the thought, the, the whole thing with the rifles, that, that meeting hit the press and the headlines were by, and the other part I didn't tell you, is that when Beecher sent the check to lines for the rifles, a parishioner had included 50 Bibles. A, a mm. crate of Bibles. And so Lines gets this crate of Bibles and then the check. Well, the the headlines were Bibles and Rifles for Kansas, K-A-N-Z-A-S, you know. Oh. <laughs> um, and so that was the beginning of this myth that all even reputable historians, I mean, they won't let it go, even shown the, you know, the uh, primary documents and everything. Uh, they have this thing that the Bibles were, I mean, the rifles were shipped in boxes marked Bibles to Kansas. So that's how I got the name. The Sharps rifle became known as the Beecher's Bible, the rifle yeah. itself. That's you know? funny. So, so when you, if you're ever reading that, that's Beecher Bible really means the Sharps rifle. And so that again fed into all that press I was talking about, those headlines. And um, again, help, Brian. Yeah, so bring me back. yeah, I'll bring you back here, Michael. So um, you, at one point, Mount Mitchell was kind of just bouncing around different people, agencies. You heard that it needs a home. It needs someone to look after it. And you come into play with this. And you're like, hey, I have an idea. I have people that are interested in this. We have knowledge behind this. We have people that know how to preserve the native tall grass. We have people that um, are historians that can bring out these stories to, you know, really show the heritage aspect of Mount Mitchell. And so what happened at that point when you started being like, hey, why don't we take over Mount Mitchell? Well, you know, I did have a point to telling you about, um, I w and that's where the th train of thought was. When we started negotiating with the Historical Society, then this threat to the Flint Hills came up. Well, what it ended up doing, what, it brought all those people who love the history of the Flint Hills and the culture. That's the other thing you see. The Flint Hills is all grassland cattle country. I mean, it's the best grass in the world, a lot of people claim. And, and so um, that threat to us brought us all together. We got to know each other across the party lines, across everything. Mm. And from that, uh, we started this uh, event, annual event. It's called Symphony in the Flint Hills. And it's a project with uh, the Kansas City Symphony. And I, I think next year will be the 21st year. Anyway, 
I got to um, go to that. I, I've heard great things about it. My neighbors uh, go to it. They bring their kids out. I got, and I'm going to go next. It's it's in the summer, right? Yeah, it's a second Saturday in June. Okay. You got to make it happen well, this year. Well, anyway, so that the formation, the people who started Symphony in the – well, for, I mean the original, original, uh, Jane Coger was having a birthday party, a big numbered birthday party, and so she had musicians come play on her ranch and on – 2000 people came of her friends and whatever. So that was so wonderful. Then we have this, what I call the wind war. People don't like me to use that term, but it really uh, was like daily battles. My God. Uh, We we finally went to the Supreme Court in our county. I did tell you about the, you know, the heart of the Flint Hills still stands, but it's at the whim of politicians. But what happened is, well, in Bobuncie County, we, the county, you know, the, the county commissioners listened to the residents and that we banned them. And it went all the way to the Kansas Supreme Court twice, and we won wow. both times. And so we brought all these people together. And so from that energy that started Symphony in the Flint Hills, Mount Mitchell kind of, I guess because I was involved, <laughs> involved with both, um, it became part of all that. And and that's what I, I don't know if I was saying it before we started recording, but um, all, no, it was after you introduced. All those accolades that the site has, um, you know, they're, they're being recognized more and more. And, and because I, I, I did listen to you and Bess. Um, that oh, was yeah. The previous, yeah. The, and uh, which I want to talk about, um, it, 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 it were at the same time again that that uh, territorial Kansas Heritage Alliance that started over twenty years ago. What came out of that was the black uh, blackjack battlefield. They're just they just got a grant from the Sunderland Foundation to build a visitor center there. I mean they those. Carrie Altern, Burned, and others, um, they got that site recognized for what it was. They were able to purchase it, turn it into a park. Uh, Constitution Hall in Topeka, same thing. Local historians wanting to save a site got together and created this thing. They just got a $5 million grant to work on their thing. And so Mount Mitchell is in line for that kind of attention. It just hasn't happened yet. I think primarily, I don't know how to say this, but as you, I guess I'm the founder, yes. Um, and we have a board of eight. You're one of the eight. Um, we don't have any paid staff. I'm retired. So I end up doing a lot of things like all those distinctions that didn't just happen. There was a lot like 20 years ago getting listed as the one of the first three um Network to Freedom Underground Railroad Commemorative Site. I mean, do you know the paperwork that's involved with that kind of stuff? It took us 10 years to get national um, register designation because, and rightfully so, from the beginning, they always wanted to include the Mitchell Farmstead. That's something that I might as well mention now because you probably will ask later. Um, The park is is right now about 170 acres, but right across the road is this 1856 log cabin 
where what which was an underground railroad station where enslaved people seeking their freedom on the underground railroad were hidden in the attic of this house that is still there it just kind of grew around it in victorian times they added on to it but the living room is the original log cabin and then there's this wonderful limestone barn our long-term goal is to make that the visitor center and a little house museum there to tell that story about the underground railroad and and so again looping back the park was originally we um, these when we finally worked with the legislature it, it the the attorney general determined that the state couldn't just give it to us we weren't an official nonprofit yet um we you know this started it was so typical grassroots locals wanted to save something and so and with no experience fundraising no experience organizing really um how do we do this and so right. we the attorney general said well you have to partner with somebody so we we found a partner and the understanding was never clear with them and we've had problems since that's all i'll say about that okay. um <laughs> but let me just say that they have done absolutely nothing to develop the park. <laughs> um, anyway, so that was the original 30 acres. And, and once we did all that and the president governor, Governor Kelly of Kansas, also a Democrat, um, she is the best. I, I, I spent time with her in November, right? Actually the day before the election. And, you know, we she got her start in Wabunsee County and all day oh. long she she it was a gratitude tour for her she's retiring after this term she has now four years as governor she got into politics to help people and she's one of the genuine people who that's true about and that's why so, I don't know why I get emotional but but that's why the Republicans elected her, because she does good things for the people. That's why she won. It's as simple as that. Kansans are very pragmatic, and they know BS when they see it, pretty much, most of us. <laughs> anyway, so um, she was just a, she was running for the Senate, the Kansas Senate, 20-some years ago, 2004, I think it was. Um, and she only won by 100 votes. And she credits Wabunsee County because as as giving her that victory because her campaign people were saying, ah, don't waste your time in Wabunsee County. They're all Republicans. You're not going to get any votes there. But bless her heart, she came to one of those information, candidate mm -hmm. information things. And that was at the height of the wind war. And we grilled her with questions. And she answered all of them intelligently. And she agreed to help us. She did help us. She won by 100 votes. And so here we are just a month or so ago, and she knows it's her last day of campaigning. And so where does she want to spend it? In Wabunsee County. And she did. And and so, oh, God, how did I get off on that one, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I'm having a lot of fun with it, Michael. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, anyway, so, so she she... The, okay, so we had that. We got the thirty acres, and it was like for then we went on for ten years, and we realized what we 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 built a website and and uh, we lit, with the Kansas Trails Council we laid out trails, let them do it. 
where we got advice on managing the prairie from the Kanza Biological Station associated with K-State. Um, Nature Conservancy, uh, Kelly Kincher, professor at KU, all these folks, um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks, they've all, they're, they're all, and I say those agencies, but it's all people. They're all people that we've come to know over the 20 years. And they're, people have retired and the people who have replaced them um, have gotten on board with managing Mount Mitchell. And it's been controversial because as anybody who really knows what they're talking about, you have to use fire and herbicides to control the brush. I mean, um, climate change has changed the, you know, that it favored grasses for eons and uh, now it's favoring a woody species. And so we have all this invasive brush surrounding the park and it's a constant seed load coming in. And we didn't, the, we didn't, we had the park and for 10 years and we didn't realize what was happening. And then professor Jesse, Dr. Jesse Nippert said, you're going to lose it if you don't do something about this, because you are a remnant prairie and they're the most vulnerable and you've got that seed load all the way around you. So you better start being aggressive with the brush and, mm -hmm. Uh, that caused problems with our so-called partners. Um, anyway, so we just went along. Well, then, and, and you know, we were small board. I could do everything because it only costs us about 30 grand a year to, to pay the insurance and, you know, all the expenses of mowing trails and all that and brush control. But then what happened well, I, I skipped 15 acres. So we got the original 30, and we knew even before we got the 30 that we have, would have to buy 15 acres to give us an access. I mean, that was one of the reasons mm -hmm. the park never got developed over 50 years was because uh, there was no access. So there was a township road on the south side of the park, but the 15 acres between the road and actually the park was owned by this most wonderful man, Junior Braymeyer, who I tell you, uh, of all the people I've ever known, Junior Braymeyer, this farmer, simple farmer from Kansas is one of my favorite. Um, he was such a joy to be around. He just, he was the most guileless human being I've ever known. Anyway, he loved the idea of a park and nice. he sold us 15 acres and um, we had our access road, then we built a parking area. And again, you know, with Bess, I mean, you guys listening to the science of what you're doing, it's like, I've lived this for 20 years and you're saying things, oh, I get it now. Oh, you're the theory of it. You know, we've been blindly doing it. Right, uh, right, right. <laughs> just something will come up where decisions have to be made and you just try to do the best you can. Well, so, so we, we sailed along for years with our 45 acres now, and lo and behold, the 125 acres that was also part of the Mitchell farm that's between the park and the farmstead came on the market. And for the last 45 years, the county has been promoting the intersection at the northwest corner of that property as major development. 
commercial and residential. And they are rebuilding the highway. It's, I don't know, 10 miles between the city of Wamigo and the interstate to the south, I-70. And they've completed the first phase of that construction. There are three. They're going to, they're started on the second. And so the whole corridor now is going to be residential and commercial. And we thought, oh my God, if we don't buy it, it's going to be quick shop, gas station, who knows? Right, right. I found out later from someone who was thinking of buying it would have been 10 ranchettes. And mm-hmm. so we just took a deep breath and a swallow and said, well, I mean, I'd never raised a half a million dollars before. And so we plunged into it. We got, fortunately, again, the landowners were very friendly to us. Um, they let us have a year to raise the money. And we raised enough to get a mortgage. And so we bought it. So here we are, you know, and, and here we are now, really, that that happened in, we paid off the mortgage in uh, the end of 21. Um, here we are, we're an eight member board and it's been me doing most everything. You know, of course we've got incredible, all those people who, you know, I've raised um, 700,000 probably altogether, maybe more. So we have a lot of support, but it's, we don't have any paid staffs. Uh, we realize the potential now. We're a 170-acre park. We're building a new access road and a new parking area. And my goal uh, is to have a interpretive shelter. And I have my eye on one. Uh, it's called Frying Pan Park. It's right by Dulles Airport in Virginia. If anybody listens to this. Um, it's uh, Fairfax County, Virginia, and it's this wonderful hexagonal shelter, and they use it for recreation and picnic and whatnot. But my idea is to have garage doors on it so it can be protected from the wind and the weather, mm-hmm. and, but that would go up and keep it open if it's nice, and mm-hmm. then have interpretive displays all around the outside of this hexagon. And then... This fellow at Frying Pan Park said theirs was paid off in three years just by rentals. And that would also, listening to Bess yesterday, um, it would involve, it would get more people to the park. I mean, you were saying, you know, um, people in Manhattan, very few people know about the park. And the, and all those things that you said, every time National Register or, civil rights every time one of those distinctions i thought oh well more people will know about it but we've come a long way but we're still not there yet Mm -hmm. and i Mm -hmm. think having a space where because already people love to come and walk and fly their kites and we thanks to our partners we do allow dogs that was their decision in the beginning um kanza doesn't allow dogs, no dogs, and that's a big problem for them because keeping them out. For us, it hasn't been a problem yet, but I'm sure it will be with poop and because we don't have anybody to, you know, pick. We don't have trash receptacles anywhere. Uh, so uh, so with what we're doing this coming spring uh, with the new road, access road and parking area, we're going to have to have garbage pickup. We're going to 
for the first time have a porta potty. Mm -hmm, Fortunately, mm -hmm. you can just pay somebody to do that. But um, we're at this point where the board needs to grow, and hopefully, we can hire someone to to take my place to do what I've been doing all this time. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Michael, with um, there are several parks out there. I think one example is in Arkansas, Buffalo National River, where they actually, and it, it's a river, so people float down it, and you you have a lot of young adults are at a party on the river. So they float down the river with their six pack or whatnot. And they, they had a trash issue and they implemented no trash receptacles at all. And they found that people did a better job of carrying their trash out. If there's no trash receptacles, receptacles. Well, that, I love to hear that because that's been the case so far, but you know, uh, and, and the present parking area is lover's lane. <laughs> You know, the things I've found there in the parking lot. It is Lover's Lane. And I have found a lot of uh, things I don't like to say. You know, I go there early, right? And so if I'm going there early uh, on a, yeah, say on a Friday morning, there may have been some excitement there Thursday night and stuff that I don't want to find. But every now and then I do find some stuff. But, hey, going back towards, you know, you're developing the northern end of the park and recently one of the things that i really loved i love how you manage the place with a lot of sensitivity and a lot of compassion and before the start of construction began on that northern part of the park you had a blessing done by a local indigenous tribe member that was really powerful i attended it i've never attended anything like that and it was something that was just really really beautiful um, and how did you come across those types of um, important things that are important towards the livelihood of people that live here. They have their ancestors buried in this area. How did you know to even act with that type of compassion um, and be able to have that type of um, response? Blessing done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, it, it goes back. Um, what is the phrase? that's now become like everything these days become a little bit controversial um, acknowledgement ceremonies, you know, um, it's quite, it's been the thing for before something even, where was I? I was somewhere. You acknowledge the native people, the indigenous people, if you're in an auditorium at a university and you're going to do a big thing or something, a lot of people will acknowledge the people who were there first. Um, uh, my partner's a member of the Motion Picture Academy, and they have a streaming service, and, and they have this before you go anywhere on their website, this thing acknowledging the native people, the Tuva people in Los Angeles where their new museum was built. So that's been, was popularized recently, but it's also become controversial because people think, oh, we did that, you know, and we don't have to think about indigenous people in, in uh. today and their needs. And so I genuinely... When, when we first acquired the park, and, and this is sensitive, and, and I, I don't think this is going out to thousands of people. Um, I, I looked at the numbers before, but this, there's, you're going to have a great library, Brian. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the things that we had to contend with is that Native American burial mound. It, mm -hmm. it's, it's from a culture that existed in this area about uh, 1,500, 2,000 years ago. And the 
there were more people then in the county than there are now. I mean, it these creeks and this landscape supported, there were mussels in the creeks, there was so much food, it, it, and they all lived, they didn't live in big villages, they lived in little family groups all along the streams. Anyway, there were a lot of people here, and that particular culture built there, and this is true, I was in New Zealand, and there was something similar there. Uh, they built their burial mounds connected to water. And on the top, it's the most dramatic place I've ever seen in Kansas. It, I haven't been everywhere, so maybe it, you know, for me at least. You look to the northwest and the river is coming at you and the light's reflecting off. You look to the north, I mean northwest, northeast, and the river's going away. It's a very... Ley line, call it what you want. It, it's a very spiritual place just for that. And so that's where they place this barrel mount. Well, ever since the park was, you know, made a park 50 in 1953, where do people want to stand? They want to stand on the highest point of the hill. And that happened to be the barrel mount. Plus, where did they put the monument that, that Will Mitchell stipulated had to be erected in his will? Will? Um, on the barrel mount. Yeah. So to get to your, your question, um, the first thing we did, um, I'm friends, dear friend, uh, John Bursaw of the Citizens Band Potawatomi. He and his brother, uh, Lyman, I, I went to them and said, well, you know, what, what would you do? And my very first job in Kansas was I was on an archaeological dig and I've been friends with all of the state uh, archaeologists ever since 1966. And Bob Horde, who just retired last month, I asked him what his opinion was. And he put me in contact with a, uh, oh, what do you, a group. What do you call them? Yeah, there's like seven archaeologists and people who share emails with each other. <laughs> uh, and so we put it out to his, his group, you know, what would you do? And of course we got five different answers out of the seven ah. because the, 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 the idea in archeology span has always, and still is for many places. Don't even talk about these burial mounts. You know, if you talk about them, somebody's going to come and loot them. Mm. And that, unfortunately has been true in many cases but in our case it's been a public park for 50 years and the trail is two feet away from it right and so we were what do we do do we put a barrier around it do we put a do any signage uh what do we do and so the consensus finally of all those folks was we're going to put a low um maybe i don't know 18 inches post around it it's about 40 feet across and then just string either a chain or a wall we wanted everything in this park has to be tasteful <laughs> while yes, i'm on board and like, well, it's important like our benches come from connecticut they're the same benches that are used in central park in new york really? they're the most yeah yeah they're the most I didn't know that. beautiful benches they're they were designed in the 30s by a woman whose name i don't i want to say dorothy lynch but that's a salad dressing so i don't know um <laughs> Um, somebody similar name <laughs> anyway so we're gonna and then we're just gonna say the sign's gonna be a low sign say please respect this 
sacred site. And that's it. And then they tell us down in the parking area in the interpretive center, we're going to be telling the story of the, the Native Americans. Because, you know, just eight miles to the southeast of the site, there is a, a, a habitation site dates 12,000 years ago. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. 12,000. 12,000. And, and they, keep, you know, and that's only because the, the creek level is that it's this high. See, the, there was all this lust blown in this area um, after the last glacier melted because, you know, the glaciers had ground up the soil and everything. And it blew around for God knows how long. And it was all up in the highlands. And then all over the hundreds of years, it all washed down into the valleys. And so it's actually, this is very near John Hunt, another board member's property. The, the layers of silt or lust, it's like 30 feet. And so that 12,000 wow. year uh, habitation level is at creek level. So who knows how far there, is it another 10 feet, another 20 feet that the creek below the creek level, which could put the dates back further but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. anyway so with, with jump with all that we, we move the first thing we did was move the monument off the grave and took it i wanted to take it off the hilltop altogether but other people you know on the board didn't want to do that so we just moved it i don't know 100 feet away or something mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. but i mean you know how to manage a park. I mean, you, and so the ceremony, who, when it came time, we honestly, from our hearts, wanted a blessing ceremony. You know, to, it was, it was Virgin Prairie that had supported populations for hundreds of years. And we come along and we plowed it up and we extracted from it for a hundred years or so. And the land across the road now, just in the last month or so, which was also Mitchell Farm, wonderful, it's called Second Bench, wonderful, wonderful uh, loamy soil. Um, what are they building there now? Um, a furniture store and manufacturing and a roofing company and yeah, three new totally houses. Yeah, it's and, totally ripped up. Yeah, it's totally ripped up. That's surrounding the Mitchell Farmstead. Fortunately, those wonderful people, they let us create a buffer around the farmstead so that when we do acquire the, buff the farmstead, it will have this buffer around it. But, um, you know... It came from our hearts that we we wanted to acknowledge the past, and it was a healing thing for for me. I wasn't there; I was, you know, I had COVID and was stuck with that. Um, but John, I had I had, and as a side to this, I had actually gone to the Kanza tribe, who Kansas is named after the Kanza or Kaw tribe, and my family's had relations with them for 200 years. Uh, my first cousin five times removed was actually the Quaker who administered to them and, and when they were forced to leave, went with them on the trip to Oklahoma. Hmm. Um, anyway, I approached them. I wanted them to do the blessing ceremony, but <laughs> it's so funny. Oh, God, you never... this. 
Kali Yuga, they don't call it that for nothing. I tell you, you know, I, I'm think, I wrote this guy this wonderful letter explaining my family history and everything. And, you know, there's even a letter from one of their first uh, female chiefs to this cousin's son, who he was the first, uh, the youngest interpreter hired by the government because he grew up with the call and spoke their language. Anyway, so I wrote all this to a letter and said, would you please come to well, and so I finally get him on the phone, and the first thing he says is, well, what's the park about? And I say, well, origin- I tell it from the beginning, so I said, well, originally it was um, as a memorial to the free state people in the Connecticut, Kansas colony. Well, if, if anybody knows what's going on in Kansas right now, <laughs> the, in about, I don't know what it was, 1913 or something, these old pioneers, free staters in Lawrence, um, there was this, uh, I'm, I won't try to pronounce its name, a glacial erratic, which is Sioux Quartzite, at the mouth of the Shungananga Creek near Tecumseh, right, at, right near the railroad tracks. And it's this beautiful 12-foot-tall granite rock. Well, all those guys knew each other. The Topeka people wanted it. The Lawrence people wanted it. So the Lawrence people snuck there in the dead of the night with the train and got a crane, took it back to Lawrence, hmm. erected it in this what's called Robinson Park right on the south side of the river bridge there. It's there to this day. And put a brass plaque on it um, as a memorial to all those free state people. Well, it turns out this was sacred to the call, this this mm. stone. And it was a sacrilege to them that that had happened. And they had despaired of it or, you know, spoken what an injustice it was. Well, finally, uh, the city of Lawrence, the commission voted to give it back to them. Okay. And so, and then a foundation gave them a lot of money to not only physically take it back to Alagawahu Park in um, Morris County, which the Co-op Indians own. It, it's, um, it's a wonderful park, uh, 200 and some acres, 300 maybe. And they have their annual dance powwows there. They have a wonderful pavilion that down there. Anyway, so that's where the stone is going, and, and a lot of the money will go towards education. Why are we doing this? Why was this necessary? And so when I said to this fellow, um, we are free staters, it, it, you're the bad guy. Yeah. Why, yeah. why do we want to commemorate these free states? They stole our sacred stone. And, and you know, it's just like, what, what is your vision here you know what is the overall picture so anyway that person i think we're going to become friends i hope so um we have a date to go i want to show him where i think all of the villages in the county were um Mm. i i think i'm the only one that probably knows that um anyway so so then i turned to my friend john and said john would you come do this and you saw he did yeah, I never give a short answer, Brian. 
No, that's fantastic. And uh, the, the blessing ceremony was, was really special and it was very special to attend. And I think it also just builds on the power that is Mount Mitchell. I mean, when you're there, um, you mm. do feel something um, visceral there. It's, it's really a great place. Um, so what is, so we're, we're up to, we're caught up to present with Mount Mitchell. Um, you're, you can't, unfortunately can't be part of the nonprofit forever, um, and leading the way. So what is your vision for say Mount Mitchell in 10 years and Mount Mitchell in 20 years? Well, I hope, I hope we have an active board. I mean, I, Everybody on our board now contributes, but it's not enough for this next phase where at least I don't think it is. Um, And we need more people on the board who aren't intimidated by fundraising um, Mm -hmm. or have a, or have a hire a person or anyway, get that done in whatever way. Um, You know, I, I mentioned black Jack battlefield, Field, they got a grant to hire an executive director. And I think I'd like to see that somehow us hire an executive director that I could train and teach and then find the money to pay for it in perpetuity. Uh, yeah. And that person would have the skills, I would hope, to grow the board. To Because, you know, there's there are people get passionate about Mount Mitchell because it is a strong, not everybody gets it, but those who do, it's like, whoa, here is a prairie. Uh, there's these folks from Minnesota, um, Syl and Ed Pembleton. They now live in Manhattan. They went, they did a tour of Kansas prairies to see, just to check them all out. And they said that the community at Mount Mitchell, the plant community was the most diverse they had seen. Wow. And and this farmland that we bought, we didn't even get to talk about that. Uh, We bought 125 acres, 25 was more native prairie untouched since the last glacier left. Um, Then we have uh, 99 acres of former farmland and it had all been terraced, you know, which was a thing for many years and still is, I guess, to control erosion in farmland, which keeps getting plowed and the rain comes and it washes the soil away. Well, now we've put it back to grass and so we didn't need the terraces anymore. And just weeks ago, well, the blessing ceremony was before we started work on that. Um, Now we're gonna be reseeding it in in about 10 days um, and we'll have a new trail system through there. And again, in 10 years, I think the the Kelseys and the Chryslers who live on the Mitchell Farmstead, that'll be around the time, if not before, when they're ready to go on to a new phase in their lives, you know. And so it'll be necessary to, you know, have the management in place to take that on, not only the fundraising to pay for it, but also to manage it. So 10 years, I'm hoping that happens 20 years out we want to be we're eligible to be a national monument i mean this as i started out this story is a national story it and and you see that's just on the bleeding kansas connecticut kansas colony beecher bible and rifle colony that story but 
as we soon, as soon as we were acquired the property, we realized you know, it's the native story, it's African American story because not just the Underground Railroad passed through the park, but settlement in the region because all these abolitionists um, settled in the region. They after the Civil War they blessed or they welcomed uh, formerly enslaved people. And there are all those stories, and oh, and we're losing them. There's, you know, the the only f- people that really remember those families are now in their 80s, and mm. I know of two right now. I miss the boat with one. She's just kind of losing her memory. She's so much fun still to be with, but um, we want to capture those stories. That African American history. It's so rich. The ex- it was not only exodusters after the failure of Reconstruction, but the the first black man in the county was 1866, I think, and and the 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 story of um, Michael Alley and his wife, um, oh, Rose Rosa. Uh, Garden her her name was Rosa Gardenhire. His name was Michael Alley. That's a whole story. Um, why is that uh, tied to slavery? Anyway, they founded a family here in Wabunsee County, and there are hundreds of descendants all throughout Kansas. Big family group in uh, Wichita, and so we want we want to tell all those stories. We want to tell the geology story, and and not least the Tallgrass Prairie. You know, this project of reseeding that 100 acres, that's there for the public to see what we're doing and how we're doing it and what seeds we're using and what methods we're using and how we management, keep the weeds down. Um, so 20 years, I would like to see us as a national monument. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's tourism, it's recreation, education, we cover so many bases, and again, always going back to it's such a heart site. Um, it just makes you glad to be a human being when you're there. Yeah, yeah, Michael. Well, that sounds great. I think that Mount Mitchell becoming a national monument would give it the support it deserves, yeah. um, and you know, being able to get that funding that it deserves. And as you just mentioned, there, it's such a great place for so many reasons, and that's what gives it a big boost in relevancy. Um, you know, it's got the recreation, it's got the history, it's got a ton of history, it's got the education components, local schools come out and do educational stuff too. it's got the conservation aspect to it. Um, gosh, I'd be wonderful for it to become a national monument. And so last question of the episode, do you know what that that process is like to become a national monument? I mean, you didn't put that in the 10 year scope, you put that in the 20 year scope. So I think you've looked into that a little bit. Well, getting on the National Register was the first step. And we had meetings, I don't know, three or four years ago maybe now, in Wamiga with the business community um, explaining the process. And Jim Ogle, uh, who also just passed away, he was this very charismatic leader of the Freedom's Frontier National Heritage Area. And he came and spoke to the mayor and the city council people. And um, they have it in their minds. But, you know, it needs to keep getting passed down because, I mean, at my age, I, I, I've cultivated all these relationships. Then they retire, you know, yeah. or they leave the scene. And so you got to keep at it. And, and so we're doing that. Um, and then the, the other big project 
in the next 10, I should have said, uh, that three-phase project of widening 99, the last phase is from Wamigo to Highway 18, which is the northwest corner of the park, is to include a bike walking trail along there. And that, that who knows, you know, the way things cost, that could be a million dollars. So, again, working with the governor, hopefully in KDOT, um, mm -hmm. we'll get that that going. I mean, everybody has agreed to it in theory. Now it's just actually, where's the money going to come from? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, and again, that'll, that'll give more, put it more on the map. Absolutely. And so how far is Mount Mitchell from, from Wamigo? Is it three, three miles? miles? Three mm -hmm. miles. Okay. Yep. I got to imagine my guess is, and just looking into the crystal ball of the future, that if Mount Mitchell did become a national monument, it would also boost the tourism to Wamigo. And Mount Mitchell already does boost the tourism to Wamigo. Um, and that's something that's really helpful for the town of Wamigo. And so I wonder if the governing body of Wamigo kind of has that on their uh, long-term future about helping Mount Mitchell become a national monument, because that's going to benefit Wamigo. Well, I think you should ask the leaders of Wamigo that. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I mean, the banker Lance White has been. I love Lance. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm all optimistic and go and go. And and when I go and talk to Lance, he he brings me back to earth and and says, "Well, what about this?" And 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 um, but I, I was right. I mean, he said nobody's ever going to develop that farmland around Mount Mitchell and here it all is just, I think two years after he told me that. Um, so no, the, and, the, and you know, in a way there's that Missouri trait of show me, you know, uh, that's the motto of Missourians. Um, there's, there's, and I don't blame them. They've been skeptical, but hello, I have been at it for 20 years now and, and we have right. brought it to this point. So it is time for them to step up. Um, mm -hmm. Because what you said is exactly true. We have all that tra traffic coming to the Oz Museum. Well, we can build on that with mm -hmm. heritage travel. And young people love to hike. I mean, hike, you know, I follow the tourism uh, through the Kansas Tourism Department of Tourism, the trends and things. And hiking is right up there with all the Gen Z people. So, again, our time will come. It just, uh, it's just taking a while. Yeah, well, Mount Mitchell, as you know, for me, it's a great place for me to get out into nature. You know, it's only about four miles from where I live, and um, I'm excited, actually, to get back out there tomorrow morning. I haven't gone out to Mount Mitchell in a couple of days because it rained a couple of days ago. Um, and so I don't go out there when it rains or the day afterwards just because the road Thank gets you. all messed up and yes. the trails get messed up. Um, but today in Kansas, we have – so yesterday it rained the day before, two days ago, yesterday was just cold and nasty. There's no way that was going to dry out. Today's been bright and sunny, about 45 degrees or so. Uh, so I'll be going out there tomorrow morning um, and getting some of my nature time in and watching the sunrise from Mount Mitchell and, you know, enjoying those views of the river and uh, just enjoying my part within that big old historical picture that exists at Mount Mitchell. So, Michael, it, Mount Mitchell means a lot to me, and I personally want to say thank you for everything you've done over the last 20 years and more to march Mount Mitchell to where it's at right now. And I know that there's so much that we didn't even cover today that you have done. There's so many details. There's so much paperwork to go into all those accolades that I listed off. Um, you know, you've done a lot of computer work for something that's for outdoors. 
<laughs> well, and you know, my favorite part always, I mean, I have photographs, us old people out there with loppers, you know, cutting the invasive uh, trees and things. And um, yeah, I, I, and just, I loved, we, we only have three benches in the park now. And, and uh, just to sit on one of those benches and just listen to the birds and the wind and everything, oh, there's nothing better. Yeah, no, and it, it it's really is a, a local treasure too. In terms of we don't have you know a lot of parks and protected areas around here. The state of Kansas is ninety eight percent private land, if not even a little bit more than that. And so these little places that are very sacred, they're protected, they're conserved, mean a lot to the people, um, to the local communities, and especially people like me, Gen Zers that like to get out hiking and enjoy nature and whatnot. So it's it's really wonderful to have nearby, and it definitely I function so much better when I can get out of nature multiple times a week. So thanks for doing everything you do. <laughs> I love to hear it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Michael, it's really been a lot of great information you shared today. Um, I, I was just blown away by all the details that you have and all this great stuff. And I think that that also resonates with, um, you know, Mount Mitchell also needs to also capture some of the historical stories from people that are, you know, getting to their later stages of life that have these personal connections to the area or their family did and whatnot. Um, so it's, it's definitely your, your expertise as a historian showed. And I think that that also connects towards, you know, making sure that we share those stories of other people too, that have a long family history in this area and with Mount Mitchell. Thanks, Brad. All right. Well, thank you. I'm going to throw on the outro music and we'll call it a session. <laughs>